Hello, this is Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice, with me, Michael Kuehl, and me, Roger Bell-West. And this week we are in the blazing summer heat of High Week, and we've, we've thrown another log on the punker waller, and we're sitting here lounging about in our, in our dressing gowns. Uh, we're going to discuss this week the political implications of role-playing games and stuff like that. And the use of language in games. Is it just an obstacle? Can it be more than that? My obsessive love for maps and other visual aids to role-playing games. Indeed, let's get started with that. This section I think I would call the look of the thing, and it's one section that I'm really going to regret we are not doing a visual podcast on, because you're going to have to work hard on the uh, on the show notes on this one. I might drop in an image or two. Yeah. I, uh, I backed the uh, Kickstarter for the Guide to Glorantha, Greg Stafford and company's great bringing together of all the stuff that they've done for the world of Glorantha and making it available to a new generation with more detail about what Greg has been thinking about and more details about all the known parts of the world. And I've got to say, it's very nice, but I'm not here just to gloat and say I have it and you don't. (laughs) But uh, looking at it, and looking particularly at the illustrations and maps in it, I started to reflect how big a part maps and other visual aids have in creating the feel of a world. I've got in front of us three pages from the atlas that comes with the with the guide. Well, it's one of the products related to the guide. And it shows three areas which are amongst the most explored in, um, in Glorantha. Uh, there's Dragon Pass, there's Prax, and up there is the Elder Wilds around Griffin Mountain. And looking at it, it's beautiful. Um, it's a, a beautiful, detail, detailed map. But I have to, this to, to observe about it. First of all, you can see, if you look at the details, embedded in it is the earliest map or we had of Grant, the map from White Bear Red, Red Moon. Which you will recall, will you recall? A war game. A war game, the very first Glorantham product that Greg came out, out with, uh, set in the wars between the Lunar Empire and the rebelling province of Sata. And you can see the hex map, map rows embedded in some of the in some of the, the locations around Snake Pipe Hollow, for instance. Mm. And on top of that is overlaid yet again a a grid map reference, rather finer in detail than you would have seen in the in the original. It looks from a distance like a fairly photorealistic modern map of some real place. And that's what the that's the look that they are trying for. I'm seeing remarkable differences in the level of detail and the map you've described as the oldest area. There's lots of stuff happening up there. Lots yeah. of lots of contours, lots of rivers, lots of settlements. Yes, that's intended to be a high Whereas we, we we wander over to the wild and well yeah there's, are, there's about a quarter as much stuff happening yeah that's quite, that's, yes all right it's an abandoned area it's, it's an empty a, area it's a it's from the from east here is the great desert in the centre of, of the continent which is there for magical reasons because everything on ground through is there for magical reasons and that's the analogy of the um, well it's supposed to be something like the wild west but not quite Indian territory nomads. Um, a blasted desert country, and the stuff to the east is even worse. It struck me, I wondered how much we use maps to make the world real for the players. As I've said before, the aim of any fiction-making and role-playing games, or a species of it, is to make the world real for the audience, and the players are the audience. It's a little odd but in worlds where the player characters, the people actually living there, know nothing of, or very little of maps, we use it so, uh, use maps so extensively. In the case of uh, Glorantha specifically, 
you've got a lot of cultures, including most of the cultures player characters have much to do with, yeah. who would not regard maps as a thing that has any reality at all. No. The 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 view you take from on high, the looking down, and I wonder at what level maps are a help and what at what level they become a hindrance. Um, to take another example, um, moving all this aside, well, I have an extensive collection. Oh gosh, do I have an extensive collection of stuff for Han, which was one of the early role-playing game settings to go systemless at first, producing it purely as a place for people to play play games in. Oh, hang on. Shift these out of the way. Here we've got the overmap of Harm on a grand scale, the whole island, which is supposed to be roughly the size of Great Britain, but laid east to west rather than north to south. Yeah. And a huge map for the whole thing. And then this is a, the map of one of the areas, the Thardic Republic, with... One of, the, one of the countries on the island with greater Ro detail and roads and, and, roads and settlements and contour lines and rivers and oh my goodness it is quite gorgeous and then you go down to the level of cities and settlements that's um, a settlement from uh, one of the adventure Chendi from one of the uh, adventure settings and even all the way down to individual buildings and what have you. Uh, this one is from Dead of Winter and you've got to have the individual buildings because this is a murder mystery and you've got to know where everybody is. Mm -hmm. I've got to say that um, the maps in in Han of buildings always struck me as a bit too orderly and a bit too um, neat and tidy and American. If you If you compare the maps of real European castles such as you'll find in the Palladium book of, uh, of castles, which I have somewhere, and have used as, as found art, the Harnick buildings are terribly neat and tidy, and, and they, they feel they feel They, they, they look as if they were put up all at once. They, yeah, they look as if they were put up to a plan, and somebody stuck to the plan and didn't suddenly discover that you had to stick another bit in it over here, and you don't have any doorways left halfway up walls, because uh, we knocked all that down last year. Mm, I'm just remembering one of the big selling points of Campaign Cartographer software when it first came mm. out was that you could link all these maps together. You could draw your huge-scale map of the yeah. entire campaign and you could say, this area ties to this other map, yeah. which you would then do in more detail, and, and you could, in theory, drill down to an individual building if you if you wanted to take the time to... You can, you can link them. There is no easy way that I've found to take your your notes on a large scale and then use them as a skeleton for what happens at the at the lower level. Mm -hmm. I haven't found I haven't found a way to do it. Doubtless people understand cam, uh, campaign cartographer more than I, which is most users will be able to tell me that. But I look at these I think one I think how much is this useful? I mean uh, it's it's all very much the wargaming inheritance, isn't it? This is over here, that is over there and it's it's marked out neatly with with hexagons. And you can put a ruler to it and say, well, as the crow far lies, that's that, that's, that's 30 kilometres from there to there. Going along the roads, it's going to be much further. I remember the Greyhawk box set, which was mm. probably in the late 80s, I'll put it in the show notes, which included a lovely map, um, very much in the style of, of that uh, large-scale Han map, though the colours were somewhat more yeah. garish. But basically, a hex map, a very high-level overview, major roads, major rivers, mm. country boundaries, things like that. And it may just have hit me at the right time, but I found it quite inspirational. I wanted to think, OK, well, here, here is a bit of ground that's between these two countries, mm. here, and here is a rough idea of what the geography is like. What sort of adventures can I set in that? Yeah. As a GM, I find, it, find this inspiring and interesting and the sort of thing that, that sparks my own interest in making somebody else's world more detailed. As a GM creating my own worlds, I find this level of achievement somewhat um, daunting. And yeah, speaking of finding other people's worlds daunting, there is one of the maps from, I think, from the Nuzuchi uh, Tekimel Sourcebook, uh, Volume 1, uh, which was sometime in the 80s. And that is the map of the of most of the five empires, uh, showing showing the detail, and even 
this is a precious piece of stuff. I even have this, uh, this which is a, a map done by one of Professor Barker's players of the of just the northwest frontier of uh, of, Te of, of Somyanu, where it meets Minamaya and Yangkor and the smaller countries around there. It's it's all very wargamey and all very detailed and all very hobbyist. But I do wonder if it's of a help to the players to have something like this. You'll see it's a it's smaller hexes inside the bigger hexes of the original map showing showing the details of woodlands and from a certain point of view this is beautiful this is a means to say i know what that fee over there owned by those player characters or those npcs look looks like i know what the problems are where the roads are where the woods are uh, where the ancient ruins are and on the other hand, in some ways, this level of detail is an oppression and a, and a burden on you. I think we've talked before when we were talking about designing a campaign, mm. of not not just the top down versus bottom up, and that this mm. sort of map is very very much of the top down scene, Yeah. But also of the importance of leaving gaps of things you didn't think of. True. And if, if particularly if you're going to start with a map of the thief, as it might be. Yeah. But really, I think any, any map where the whole map is in campaign scope to start with, yeah, you are at risk of painting yourself into a corner because you've defined a thing. Mm. You've said this: this is what you know about, and if you and if you want to have something you know, miraculous geography, say, yeah. or you just want to say, well, for this adventure, I could really use a bit of marshland, and oh bother, I didn't put a bit of marshland in the player's thief. Yeah, Durantha sold this well at least made a, a nod towards this by having the idea of uh, blank lands of there being some places on the map i don't know if this is in the uh, in the new version i haven't finished reading my pdfs yet yeah. i'm probably not going to give it a thorough read until i get the actual physical copies which i am lusting for somewhat terrible but at one stage there were definitely places where there is canon and set up uh, doubt and uncertainty about what's happening there and you can create mm. your own well, if if you're going to have a big published world, then I think that's probably a good approach to take because you, you know, people's individual campaigns are going to diverge. We've talked about this before with Metaplot, yeah, and it's not not as significant as it is there, but still, you, you're going to run into situations where you say, "Well, we did this, and so that shouldn't apply anymore." First of all, I would say that one of the good things that Harm does is it provides player maps, not only player maps of individual locations where the players can scribble their own rude notes on, on them and, uh, and, the, the, and there, there, there are none of, the, none of the GM's keys which mm. says, look, there is something significant here. Um, but also what they call impressionistic maps of, the, uh, of, the gen of each individual kingdom, um, the, the sort of and, map a PC might be expected yeah, to get hold of an artifact from the world from the world yeah which is a which is a very good approach but I've noticed that Steve Jackson games with uh, with Gert's Bainstorm and their world of Earth has decided seems to have decided not to go below the overall kingdom level of things I don't know whether it's because the one occasion which they printed uh, one of the two occasions, in, I should say, when in which they printed things in more detail was Treadroy, and the map in that was something of a disaster since it appeared to make the the bridges across the river there approximately four miles long, <laughs> which is a peculiar mistake to make, and um, I'm not quite sure how it arose. I thought there were maps in Abydos, but I don't remember now. There is, oh, yeah, there are... It's not terribly detailed in Abydos. And There's I, I, I basically one, one could city blocks. There haven't really been books dealing with a small enough area. Yeah, I want to know why not. I keep nagging them about this. but mm. um, Anyway, looking at maps, and I've got even more stuff here which our, our, our listeners cannot see. I recognise the deck plan of the subsidised liner. Oh, yes, and, uh, uh, and, the, and the stuff from Sata. It started me thinking about... Um, oh, and I've got stuff from the from Numenera. I've got that on PDF as well, and I'm sort of struggling through it. Now that, Numenera goes all three levels. That's the overview of where all the player 
centred adventures are, which is only part of the world. So what, what we have is something like a continental scale view with obvious man-made artefacts on it. That says something about the world. Oh, it does, yes. Yes, you are living in the junk of, of nine previous civilizations, and you don't understand m most of it. And then down to the kingdom level, and then even down to the... As far as it goes, it doesn't go down to buildings, but it goes down to a, a map of a small village, to be, which is intended to be a sample player character base. Um, but anyway, looking at all these lovely maps, and I do, I do, I do like them, and I do lust after them. I wonder how much, how much other visual aids will help. Um, one of my oldest fond gaming memories is something that happened with my friend Hartley Patterson in his uh, RuneQuest Midgard game a long time ago. We were a bunch of adventurers struggling along a road, along a, a clifftop path with mists down below. Mm. And we came around a corner and suddenly uh, Hartley said, and this is what you see. And he pulled out a huge scale rock poster by one Roger Dean for a, a Yes album called Close to the Edge mm -hmm. and showed it us and said, this is what you see. Now, this really has to link in the, uh, in oh, the show. It should be out there somewhere. Um, well, I got it off the internet. Is um, basically uh, an, a lake on a, on a tabletop mountain which is pouring over the edges and there are islands in the lake and there's a bridge leading across to it. Oh, and it's a, it's a beautiful, fantastic sight. And he could just say, here, that's where you are. That's what you're, what's, what you're seeing. And that for me was one of the strongest moments. Now there's a lot of this stuff in the, in the new, um, in, in the new guide to Glorantha. Uh, there are uh, pictures of the of the heroes of, of the and peoples of the various uh, cultures. There's um, this, which is a lovely illustration of a, of a miraculous divine moment, the uh, ascension of uh, the king Sartar to become a to become a god. Visually, that sort of thing is it puts you there more strongly than, than anything than anything I, I know of be able to see what the players would see from that point point of view. I also have brought along the, the source book for Parvis, which is one of the cities in Grantham. And the view from above of the city, the view of the three-dimensional view of the city, mm -hmm. um, made me see it a lot more clearly than any map would have done. Yep. And... I wish there was some means whereby I could create. Well, first of all, I wish I were an artist. All right, wish number one, but I'm not. It would be lovely if there was some means by which I could create the sort of ground eye view of any sort of fantastic location which you can get out of Google Earth. I know that is a ludicrous and uh, and excessive wish, but that's a sort of quality of visual creation and what is a, a chap what are we to do such chaps as as i who who long for this sort of detailed creation for visualization of our own worlds the closest i've got to that sort of thing i'm also not an artist as you'll know if you've read my webcomic um is a 3d modeling of spacecraft and significant vehicles because that's mm. much easier to do than people um, yeah um cities and buildings should be possible. I'm, I'm sort of surprised nobody's done this. High that, detail is tricky. Yeah. And if, if you're looking along a street, then you need a detailed texture of what the nearest building is made yeah. of, brick or stone or whatever. And just bu building in the choices there, you're going to be making you're going to be making assumptions. I mean, it's been done in computer games, but computer games tend to cheat a lot because it's also very demanding on memory and processor and so on. How do you I mean, mean cheat? You might have your your nearest buildings are actually modelled. But you're, but you're in a more constrained area than you think you are, because after a bit you're just going to run into the edge of the world. And oh, that, right. there's a skybox which has a picture of more buildings. Unless, well, unless you're refreshing, if, you, if you're refreshing as you go and... Have, having a big environment with lots of stuff in it is, is hard work, even for current computers. Mm. Um, there, there, there have been games with big environments with not much stuff in them. Uh, I, I played a lot of Tribes and Tribes 2. 
which are first-person shooters where you're bounding around huge open environments, but you you have one or two standard buildings in them and you're mostly out in the open air. Yeah. Um, you, you can do this. It's it's getting more possible, but it's still hard work. Yeah, I think this is what a friend of mine called the, the School of Cheap Animation Man. <laughs> um, he, he did a, a thing about all those those uh, 70s and 80s children's cartoons. Look up there in the sky. It's Cheap Animation Man. Or the classic Hellebarbera where you just have the same bit of backdrop going past again and again and again. Yeah. One, th- one game which was a breakthrough game from the point of view of visualisation, for me at least, was Everway. Um, one thing that Jonathan Tweet always says is that visual, visual stimulus allows the players to be more creative, and the GM is one of the players. And one of the things they did, I may have mentioned this before, is base their character generation around bits of found art, or specially mm. commissioned uh, art sometimes, of the, uh, in, in a fanta- of the fantasy genre. I've got here the calendar that they brought out with... Uh, with lots of uh, uh, of really quite oh, quite lovely reused mostly um, art from fa- fantasy products. It occurs to me is if if you've got people who who um, are already familiar with the ideas of it, then using a good tarot deck for character creation. Well, yeah. like, well, because you've got the same idea of here is a picture with lots of stuff in it. Let's key on particular elements of it. Well, uh, Everway used uh, for resolution um, a faux tarot deck, um, and was, uh, which was part of the, the the whole background and an artifact you could find in the world. Again, I'm I'm sort of my good advice to myself and to other people is to do is to regard anything you come across, such as that that poster that Hartley used to such effect all those years ago as found art and bring it into into your game and be a lazy GM. But I, I, I feel the urge towards doing things more spectacularly. Every time I describe a scene to one of my players, I worry whether I'm creating the same image in their mind or anything near the same image in their mind as I have in mine. And the number of occasions when they say, hang on, didn't you say the white van was over here? Or merely mundane questions like that. Oh, they're, they're outside the cafe. That was that was last Wednesday's conversation around my gaming. Looking at all these maps does remind me how very much it was assumed, particularly in the nineteen eighties, that you would be playing with miniatures on a on a map of some sort, tactical map all yeah. the time. And I I never did that very much. I did it a little bit, but um, it it in early role playing games it was just the default assumption. And I, it I, is I a help. One, one one needs to be. One needs to think about what one loses by getting rid of that. It is a help when it comes down to tactical decisions, close tactical decisions. Do I do I draw my gun or do I do I try and gra- grapple grapple them? Just how close is this guy? Yeah, uh, how, how far away am I from? And I would have saved a lot of arguments last last Wednesday if I had got out the battle map, got out some figures, and sketched the situation in the square in the city of London rather than just using my imagination and my tongue. These days I do tend to draw a lot of quick sketch maps. Mm. But, on the other hand, on the grand scale, I have books at home about geography, uh, basic um, physical geography, which I intended to use when I do any serious world creation um, to uh, build up from the start. Here's the mountains, that means the rivers are there. That means uh, that means there's going to be fishing villages here, here, and here. Rollmasters, um, I think it was campaign law. One of the Rollmaster books had a similar thing: how how to build a world quite literally from the ground up. Then I remember something about um, rather hexagon-looking things in GURPS about about trade networks. And and GURPS fantasy has some stuff on that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know where this is going, other than to, to say I really appreciate the people who put these things together, and I'm still a sucker for detailed and beautiful presentations of particular worlds. I don't know if my players feel the same way. I'm probably more utilitarian in this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I Partly because I've, I've 
tend to hack things about quite a lot myself, so the, the more specific an illustration is, the less useful it's likely to be to me. I'm just look, looking at the ones you've got out. The, the, the ascension of Sartos of Godhood yeah. is not a thing I need, I'm ever going to need to show to my players, I suspect. No, probably not. But On it, the other hand, I, he, here is a bunch of warriors of, typical of this culture. Yeah, it's exactly the sort of thing I would find useful. Here is what the monster look, looks like. Here, here is what the um, gloomy, foreboding castle looks like. Here is what your home um, looks like. Here is here is what your village looks like. Here, yeah. Here is what your character probably looks like. Mm-hmm. It, all that, all of that, all of that helps. Have you ever tried designing a world geography up? Um, yes. I didn't okay. get very far with it because it was part of a larger project that kind of fell by the wayside. Uh, but it basically started with, with a random geography simulator that I dug up from somewhere. Hey. Um, I, I, have on a, I have on at least one occasion made good use of fractal worlds, which is... A, a, it it a was something, of... along, something along those lines. Um, and it, it ended up with lo- lots of ice and lots of fjords and lots of horrible glaciers you don't want to get lost on. So th- this was clearly going to inform the uh, civilizations that, fo- that formed on it. Hmm. I would, uh, I would, I would plead with any of our listeners who have a solution to all the all the problems of where do one, does one get? Uh, how does one make visual art? I suspect I'm going to have to be a plagiarist, and uh, Tom, Tom Lira's advice here is is always good. Hmm. Um. I, I've done a certain amount of cutting and pasting. Um, yeah. And the internet is a, is a great b- blessing if you want to, to say, well, this is the sort of thing I had in mind for this particular tribe. Yep. But um, on the whole, I, I don't know if there is an easy solution to this. Although, as I say, I like maps. I like maps. I've got a lot of them. Oh, my. How much <laughs> money I have spent. I hope they go to a good home when I die. But at least they're not maps of places that actually exist. That's a virtue, I suppose, <laughs> up to a point. I think we should pass on. got back from Finland. Does language have any place in games? Uh-huh. How did you manage in Finland? Almost everybody speaks English. Yes, that, that is one of the things I found about Holland as well. Um, I, know, I know a few phrases, such as, my beer is broken. And uh, I spent two weeks in, in, in Spain once, and all I could manage was la gente por favor. Early games? Yeah didn't really deal with language in a significant way. Well, sometimes they did. Yeah, common, um, common yeah. is a very interesting construct um, from a, a, a narrative point of view. Yes, looking at early D&D various versions, it seems to me that there was all this stuff about your racial language, your alignment language, all these other languages you spoke. Alignment languages were bloody weird. But... A party whose members can't speak to each other is no fun. Yeah. So you have to have something like a common tongue. You have to have a language that everybody can speak, and then, in my experience, at least most of these people ignored all the others. Yeah, well, I, th- I think the second role-playing game that TSR came out with was uh, went against that, because it was produced by a professor of, of languages. <laughs> and uh, Professor Barker had, had detailed the structure of the languages and had worked out several of them in enough detail to be able to speak. And I still have a copy of the um, Soliani um, Dictionary and Phrase Book, uh, including such useful uh, phrases as how much for just the two slaves. Your camel is standing on my foot. Yeah, yeah. Your chlen. Your chlen. It's a chlen. And (laughs) I, I found some of this fascinating. I never bothered to buy the um, tape which had um, uh, a recording of Professor Barker uh, speaking the language. Um, <laughs> and I once ran into a group of, uh, of Tecumel purists who corrected my pronunciation of some of the words. <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm speaking in the nor- northern Soliani accent. 
Um, Functionally, though, what what role does it play in the game? Well, uh, not... All right. There are bits of it that are very useful. There are some things that you need a separate word for. There are customs. Um, Aridani means a woman who's declared herself the equal of a man. Um, and there are names of all the all the species, which which are different. These aren't elves. That um, mm. that, com- that communicates itself. And this isn't Earth. But when you get to the detail whereby you have to know that the captain in the captain equivalent in the legions is called a Molkar. Well, that might be a major. And the, and the commanding officer is a Kasi. Um, it gets a little too much. And as for the various ranks of the, uh, of the, in, in the, in the, in the temples, it's just bloody ridiculous. I, I should note that Han went along this route a little bit as well hmm. and should have been kicked for doing so. I'm just th- thinking of languages in play. Mm-hmm. Um, the the earliest role in which I found them was basically as an obstruction. Yeah. In in the same way that you could have a dark room or a sheer cliff, you have to have some sort of counteracting ability in order to progress past the obstacle. Yeah. In this case, you know, you've, you've gone to a new place, but you can't usefully sell your loot or buy new gear until you learn the language. Or, yeah. it, could, or it could be a prerequisite to uh, quite, quite a common thing in fantasy, is the idea that there is a specific language you need to learn in order to learn magic. Yes, um, and sometimes that's... Uh, a useful uh, shtick to pull. You you need to speak Enochian, you know, in order to be able to do this, that, and the other. So I, I'm basically regarding that all, all, overall as language as prerequisite for something. It, yeah. it doesn't really do anything in itself. Yeah, but it's it's there. Well, there's language's background detail. You know perfectly well that it would be unrealistic for common is 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 not not a sensible construct. I can readily believe in some sort of trade pigeon. Yeah. Where you've got you've got all these races with their different cultures who interact a bit, but aren't really living cheek by jowl. Yeah, Grantha had trade talk, and that was a useful construct. But you couldn't, you. Uh, I think some of the rules said you can't take trade talk above a certain level because it's just not built that way. We know we know talk subtle concepts. Mm. Yes, epistemologically, what that. Um. So it can be a thing that a character does, um, particularly in a point-based system, yeah. in the same way that you can have a character who does piloting or healing or social yeah. status or whatever. You, you, can you have, have the scholar cat. You have the Daniel Jackson character, who knows all them languages. Yeah, or quite quite often the face man will be the one because they're the one who's actually going to have to talk to people. Yeah. Uh, in GURPS, you've got the language talent, which makes it cheaper if you're learning more than five languages to full yeah. fluency. Uh, of course, a lot of games do it like this. And it, uh, Torg I've been looking at recently has a languages skill. Yeah. And if your languages skill is high enough, you can speak and understand any language you like. Oh, goody. Yeah, I... Because it's a cinematic thing, you know, here is the character who is the linguist. I'll tell you one thing that really annoyed me about In Nomine is the fact that the angels have to have specific language skills. Now, look, if any employer is going to give you the ability to understand any language whatever, it's their employer. <laughs> and I really feel, on the whole, that the demons too should not be faffing around, taking taking correspondence courses or listening to records in order to be able to speak French. It just strikes me as mm. contrary to the genre. Maybe it's the ability to speak a language that isn't perceived as the listener's primary language. Um, go come again. Is well, this the, a... the the the. You know, if, 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 I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to Pentecost here. Yes. So, where, where the whole point was, here, here is one, one guy preaching and everybody hears it in their own I, native language. Yeah, I, I was thinking... So where, um, you ne- where you need to learn the language skill is if, say, you, you, are, you are talking to somebody, you want them to hear it in a specific language, not the language they grew up with. There's a Doctor Who reference here from uh, the, Donna, <laughs> uh, the Donna Noble years. Actually, I was thinking of the, the fact that I don't think angels should have been affected by the Tower of Babel. <laughs> But yeah. Anyway, but basically, lang- language as a frustration is a frustration. It, it, yeah. it, it's an obstacle for a while, and then you get the ca- you get the counteracting ability, and then you never have to worry about it again, which isn't particularly interesting. So, what what more can one do with languages that isn't that? Okay, go on. Um, I was thinking, yeah, we we don't need to argue about exactly how much this is true, but I think we can generally agree that to some extent, languages can affect the way that people tend to think. All right. Yeah. 
I can't remember what the name of the hypothesis is. Sapir Wolf. Sapir Wolf, yeah. Which only sounds like a Star Trek reference. So, on. Certainly one wouldn't want to take it to extremes, but I think it's reasonable to say that if, if you habitually talk and think in a particular way, uh, modes of thought will get baked yeah. into the language because they're the ones that commonly get used. I think the current... Well, I last read something about this. The current belief is that, though it's true up to an extent human beings will find words that they need and create them. Yeah, if it were absolute, we wouldn't get any new words. Yeah. Um, and there are certainly, in science fictional examples, plenty of alien languages that support a completely alien mode of thought, and mm -hmm. C.J. Cherry did a fair bit of this. Yeah. Uh, not, not something that tends to come up in games. Uh, closest I would come to it is, um, say, Gip's um, trade like open-mindedness or xenophilia. Mm. You could possibly justify that by taking a whole bunch of languages and saying, right, you know, I, I've met all these different modes of thought. Yeah. Therefore, I'm more... Yeah, maybe. Um, and again, that could map into you need to learn this language to learn magic, learn abstruse philosophy, mm. whatever. Uh, yeah. You know, within my lifetime, it, it has been the case that if you wanted to do certain sorts of philosophy, you would, you would still need to learn German because there was just no point in doing it in translation. I believe chemistry was... It was and, uh, yeah, in, in the 50s, you still had to learn German to do chemistry. Yeah. Um... So yeah. You can tell how up-to-date my information is. Another thing that doesn't tend to come up in games very often, but is, is the sort of thing that I like to have in games, mm. is more serious language use. Uh, you know, you, you've got your basic bargaining and fast-talking and so on, but yeah, what yeah. about writing a poem or a political pamphlet? Oh. You, you've got a skill in that. Yeah. But really your facility with the language is likely to limit that as well. Well, yes, and it should. Um, also the other way around, when you read the poem or the pamphlet, how much do you pick up? Yeah. I tend to be I tend to be fairly generous. I want to give players information. Um I'm not I don't go the whole gumshoe route, but I do want them to figure stuff out and if they yeah. can for each for each piece of information uh, that you have to reveal, you should have uh the fumble idea, the failure idea, the success idea and the critical idea in the back of your head. Mm. The 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 I've got this totally I've got this totally wrong I've got this I just can't make head a tail of it I've got the basics and oh I understand this exactly because I was reading a book about it just the other day yeah the flip side of that is that if you've got something that's challenging mm. and you've got the right character to work it out yeah then it's a moment of awesome for that character it's true and they want to be awesome. Yeah, I, I have read lots of 17th century French poetry, and therefore I realise that this mm. this guy is using 17th century French poetry, and that is in itself a clue. I think I should mention, talking about mundane uses of language, I think I should mention uh, what's in the new Discworld book, which is the skill of shouting at foreigners. Mm -hmm. I feel, for people like me, um, who will go abroad every so often and will come back being able to say, like, Heintat, por favor. And don't tell me I'm mispronouncing that, our listeners. Um, there ought to be a skill in you. You're a world traveller. You go around the world, and you can pick up the basics, um, and shout and shout at the natives, and they will get the basic. There is a very imperialist set of assumptions in there. I'm aware, but actually, it does happen. In terms of GURPS, I think you'd probably dress this as language talent slightly modified. Yeah, I think GURPS is a bit too finely... It requires you to take too big a step. Yeah, but you, at that point you can say, what, what, once I've... There, there is a uh, hidden gem in one, one of the GURPS supplements. It's one of the power-ups books, I think. Uh, the Dabbler perk. Mm. Yeah. Which lets you take one point and say, I've got a whole bunch of skills that I know a little bit about, not enough actually to count as skills on my character sheet. Okay, no, that yes, that is a hidden gem which I I must try bringing in. Dabbler languages. Okay. Um, so politics. Okay. Lang languages being human constructs have oh. politics. Things like if 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 you are speaking nor northern Berber on the north coast of Africa, yeah, you're speaking the language. You have three different ways you can write it down, and the way you choose is basically a political statement. You can write it in Latin script, which basically means you, you're in favour of the of the old colonial approach, yeah. or you can write it in Arabic script, which means you're in favour of the, the new Islamic approach, or you can write it in the local script, which has just about survived, which means basically, nerds to you lot. <laughs> we, we want our own damn culture. 
And th this is something that just doesn't show off in most places. It, it, it's perhaps too much detail, but it's the sort of thing that happens. Yeah. You, you, the, the four, there are technically, officially now, four languages, Bosnian, Croatian, Montenegrin and Serbian. Uh, how much difference is there between them? Well, the Serbs use Cyrillic script, by choice. Right. But otherwise, they, they are basically the same language, but the local politics require that they be regarded as separate languages because they're all separate countries. God, so so, any, so any, any local difference now gets deliberately exaggerated. Yeah. I, this reminds me of something I saw, I think, in a New Statesland uh, weekend of competition, an alternate history um, from a world in which um, Bonnie Prince Charlie um, had succeeded, and it was marked as translated from the Lallans. Ah, now that's another one. If, if you're a linguist in Scotland these days, oh god, you pretty much have to have to say that Lallans is a separate language and not a dialect of English. Is it? Two thirds of the people who use it reckon it's a dialect of English. But the politically acceptable thing to do is to say it's. Well, so, so, so I've been told. I don't. I know it could become a separate language, but it's it's too. I'm not going to get in the middle of this. I, I, I did miserably in my language pa paper in, in finals. But the, so. ju it's just an example of the sort of thing that shows up. Uh, we should yeah. perhaps say for the benefit of listeners outside the UK um, that, that this is not Scots Gaelic we're talking about. That This is what one might think of as Glaswegian, mm. for example. Then you have sign languages. Sign languages are great. Oh, boy. Go on. You've done some research on this, I can tell. <laughs> I, I wrote an article in Pyramid, which you should buy. Uh, yeah, go on. But... Basically, the sign languages in various countries are more or less coincidental, um, based on the native language, whoever, whoever started teaching sign language to deaf people first. Yeah. So in the UK, we, we have British Sign Language, and it's basically English translated into a, into a sign system. Yeah. In the US, you have French translated into a sign system. And or the quite. Grammatic, the grammatic, because the guy who first taught people to sign in the US yeah. was a native French speaker. It strikes me that there's no absolute reason. Look, sign languages have to be ideographic languages. Yes, but you still have grammatical structure. Yeah, but uh, why the, the logical thing to do would be based on something like Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have 10,000 signs? I have 10,000 signs, and if you can make 10,000 signs with your hands... I can manage 1,024. <laughs> Get away with you. <laughs> but I would have th I would have thought that the uh, I'm right in thinking that ideographic languages don't correspond to the to the to the vocal language at all. Uh, it's it's a bit more complicated than oh, that. It would be, wouldn't it? Um, all right. I've yeah. There, there's probably a project out there to create the, the worldwide sign language. Um, somebody out there should probably give it a try. Probably. I mean, we, we, we haven't had much luck with, with worldwide spoken and written languages. Hey, I, I think you heard the wave of the future. You heard it here first. There's, there's a lovely web page about Esperanto explaining that actually you can tell from, from the features of this mm. universal culture neutral language exactly which part of Poland the guy who invented it grew up in. <laughs> <laughs> One detail I found myself in fold within my one of my current campaigns is the the fact it's a village from 1100 England which has been translated to uh, uh, the world or the Bainstorm and of course the rulers who are mostly the player characters should be speaking Norman French mm. and um, only have English in the shouting at foreigners uh, level but on the whole, I decided this was not very interesting, and I gave the and I gave the uh, noble characters a, um, a dual uh, first language without further charge because I thought that would just be dull, Realis realistic, uh, but uh, not costing them any points. I think I think for linguistic difficulties to be interesting, they have to be not non frustrating. Mm. So it it should be something that maybe you can get round in another way, or that you don't have to do very often, or that's a major campaign challenge to overcome, or something like that. Yeah. Not, not just, I, 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 want to sell, I want to sell these used armour. Actually, actually, given that they are the nobles and the English speakers are the peasants, it's going to be, you haven't cleared out my chamber pot again. So, uh, so shouting at foreigners would probably be a, be a useful trait mm. here. The fact that some of them are picking up Elvish um, is, is, <laughs> is purely a side issue.
Uh, it was one world I, I worked on years ago where it was just about possible for a human to learn you know, basic nursery elvish. But the brains weren't wired right? Uh, it's more that to, to learn the language in its full complexity sim simply takes about 50 or 60 years. And it yeah. helps to start when you're very little. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I have had to create um, words in Elvish. And look, the Elvish in the in in Steve Jackson games isn't detailed. You've got a, a basic list of some Elven names, and they 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 are not interested in going into that level of detail. Honestly, I'm I'm not myself. Mm. Occasionally, every so often, I have to pull out a word for something like. I think I mentioned uh, the equivalent of the Larry Niven word for having sex with somebody you can't reproduce with. Mm which is true between um, elves and dwarves, but apparently not true between uh, elves and humans, as they're discovering to their shock. <laughs> but I think it's interesting what Professor Barker did in a few few places with Tecumel, and take, giving you new words, because there are different things in that social setup in that world, different customs... Different beasts. It's not. It's not a horse standing on your foot. It is a ch a chlen beast, and that that implies other things. Amongst them, you can't get on the on the chlen beast and ride away because they're bloody slow. Yeah, and one one wants to avoid having too much of a, of a cliff for new players to climb. I don't know. Throw them off it. Throw mm. them off the cliff. But that you you wanted to you want to introduce new things, but you want to do it a bit a. a a new, a new word a week, maybe. Yep. Would be the way. Would be the way to the way to do it. And you can't. My, my thought is is the classic problem that I've I've had when trying to join a very long running RuneQuest campaign of every every other player in this campaign knows Glorantha inside out and I don't. Mm. So you know, I I can manage things up to a point, but I'm simply not going to understand most of what's going on here anymore. I think I feel I must play a run Glorantha for you sometime. But no, when I, when I played in yours, it did, it did make rather more sense. Okay. Any more points you wish to raise on, on that thing? note? I think. Okay. okay. Pass on. Pass on. I was reading recently a book um, about the history of Radio Four. Now, for our um, American and other foreign listeners of whom I hope there are many. Um, I should explain that Radio 4 is the BBC's primary spoken, uh, mostly, uh, language uh, broadcasting station, and is very much a symbol and a pride of the British middle classes, the um, educated, uh, professional bit of the, the workforce. And it's very much um, the voice of the middle classes and their great, their great treasure. And that got to me, me to reflect, uh, reflecting about the class basis of role-playing games, which got me onto more complicated topics, which I'll get onto in a moment. And I remembered many years back, um, sometime in the 80s, I was approached at one of the uh, Games Workshop Games Days by a BBC producer who was thinking about doing a feature about role-playing games. And uh, we started to chat about what I did and what the the sort of thing that is as an actor um, who who ran role playing games. It was I was a good copy, I think. And then he said, "Isn't it a terribly middle class hobby? Um, you all seem terribly articulate sitting around um, describing these things. Isn't it a terribly middle class hobby?" And I'm afraid I looked at him and I said. Are you implying that the working classes can't be articulate? And that sort of soured our relationship from then on. Smart Alec young git that I was. I could I could have been the BBC's role playing game correspondent by now. <laughs> yeah, if I had only kept my, my tendency to be sarky shut. But looking around my in my head around my, my two tables, I do see people like lawyers and uh, chemical engineers and computer geeks and uh, that sort of person mostly sitting around my tables. And I think to myself, well, maybe he had a point. It is a terribly middle-class hobby. Well, I think there's a certain... Well, there's going to be some filtering on it, at least as I tradition, as I started in, mm. in the 1980s, and probably as you did a bit earlier, in that you have to have a certain amount of free time. Yeah. Uh, you have to have the ability to get to somebody else's house or a house where you can have people over. Yeah. You have to have more free time 
because there's a if you're GMing because there's a certain amount of preparation to do. True. So that that's going to put a certain certain pressure on the sort of job you can be doing and run a role playing campaign. And I, I've had players. Most most of them, I, w- I would agree, are are in the same sort of general bracket that you described. But I've had players who who were plumbers and carpenters and things like that. And as yeah. long as long as they were articulate enough, which they generally were, or they weren't interested in role playing in the first place. Yeah. Obviously, I don't know how many of them would have filtered themselves up before that. But you know, I, I, I've had one one guy who was a great bloke, but woefully unreliable because he just couldn't reliably turn up to sessions because he had stuff going on in his personal life. Yeah. But I don't regard that as a particularly lower class thing. No, I may. I don't. I don't know if it's a bad thing. I just uh, don't know if it's a restricting thing. And then I got to thinking about the other thing I was. Thinking well, I don't think about. it's intrinsic to role playing. That's what I'm getting at. I, mean, I think you'd find the same thing for anything else that required you to gather in person in reasonably significant numbers and to do a certain amount of preparation. Uh, watching football matches. No preparation needed. Well, I don't know. Some people go to great lengths. <laughs> and then I thought. Is there a politi- set of political assumptions behind the structure of role-playing games? Um, my, my old tutor at Oxford was the well-known Marxist Catholic Terry Eagleton, um, and he was very big on the hidden political assumptions behind various kinds of literature. And if you look at something such as any pulpish game from the 19... No, pulpish genre piece of fiction, let alone our games from the 1930s, there's all sorts of assumptions about colonialism about class about race baked in, deep into the structure of the thing there's, if you look at any narrative from the 19th century there are assumptions perhaps one way or perhaps another about capitalism, about wealth, about class I'm sorry, this may sound a little weird um, coming we British are obsessed about about the issue of class and class distinction in some good ways and some bad. We admit that it exists. Unlike some Americans. That is not that is meant to be a dig. Yes, that is meant to be a dig. But then I got to thinking about role playing games as a artistic activity. In one way, they are very much like the hero concept of history, the great man concept of history. Individuals do remarkable things and make a difference and change lives. Sometimes if the scale is grand enough they change worlds. But they also do it within this collective structure of the role-playing group. And that strikes me that it's got a peculiar hybrid form to it. You are a hero but you're not a hero alone. I think it varies quite a bit with the type of campaign as well. Okay. Um, the, the early stuff, your, your early fantasy adventures. Yeah. Absolutely. It, it's all about, uh, I, I am, or at least we are the tough guys. We are going to kick down doors and kill monsters and take their stuff. The Wild we, West in plate armour. Yeah, we, we, we are going to gain personal power, yeah. essentially without limit. And, and we, 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 we may end up as benevolent dictators. But, fundamentally, this is about us. Yeah. But, there are also... And that, that is, call, call it the, the Lone Heroes campaign. Yeah. But you've also got campaigns where you are part of a functioning society, um, maybe you're working for an organisation. Yeah. And sometimes the right thing to do is not to take the thing on, whatever the thing might be, yeah. but to back off and call in the experts. Uh, yeah. so, some people really hate that. They, they they really dislike the idea that the PC is not the ultimate force for everything. But I'm I'm just thinking of, for example, a Laundry Files campaign run by John Dalman, yeah. where we were basically the, the the frontline investigators. But once we once we had investigated the, and classified a problem, mm. and said this this is this particular sort of situation, and survived it. Yeah. Um, what we would quite often do would be contain it and call in the experts in that particular field, because we now established that that was the field that we needed the experts from. I think the, I think the trick with the laundry campaign, I, I might want to come back to this in a later se- uh, segment, is to arrange it so that the player characters are unexpectedly the people at the pointy end. They mm-hmm. always go out assuming that they are 
in grave danger from hideous things from beyond the grave and from human resources. And the thing is to prove them right and then some. Yeah, but w w what I'm trying to get at, I think, is, yeah. is that while I'm not aware of any campaigns which are explicitly glorying in your position as part as a cog in the great machine, there, there are <laughs> certainly campaigns in which you are not the be-all and end-all, yeah. but you are the guy on the spot. Yes, yeah, sometimes it goes... Sometimes it goes too far. So there are elements in the Great Pendragon campaign in which you are just standing back and watching King Arthur do stuff. And that's glorious for you. You, you were there at the Battle of whatever the hell it was where you saw Arthur smite. But it's a bit it's a bit pointless for the player characters. Going yeah, back the, 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 the final Torg adventure yeah. has reportedly suffers from similar problems. That, yeah. Now, now we get to watch while this High Lord gets taken down by somebody else. Yeah, but we've, we've ranted about this uh, yeah. this before. Going back to the to the early days of role playing, is it, is there a reason that that sort of campaign would also, was also the sort that tended to lead to uh, party backstabs? And um, this is going to be about me now, and I'm stepping out to the front. It, is is there a glory hound element? There is, it, I, I've uh, never really been in backstabby sorts of group. I, I, I'm thinking of the well, the, the the primary sort. What does the Magnificent Seven say as a political statement? Because that's the primary source, even more than than than, than the Fellowship of the Ring, I think, for this a bunch of really tough guys, but working together. And there's what, at least one player, at least one character in the. Um, in, in the in the Magnificent Seven, who has decided screw you lot, he comes back uh, and gets himself killed heroically. But um, he decides screw you lot, I'm I'm, go I'm going off. I think it was very often an unspoken assumption. Yeah, we, we we had the fantasy literature that was basically about one or two heroes for the most part, yeah. or a hero and sidekick or whatever. But this is obviously impractical because you've got a bunch of guys and they all want to be the hero. Therefore. Mm, at least in my early experience, there was a certain sense that, well, it's kind of inevitable, you're just going to have a crowbar, crowbar more people in. Mm -hmm. And for for me, that was where the concept of niche separation really started to um, become important. Yeah. So you've got one, one guy who's the big barbarian who hits things, and a different guy who is the wizard who blasts things. And yeah. they, they can each be the best at their own thing. Because mm -hmm. there's, there's certainly a, a, a strong element of just wanting to be really good at what you do yeah. in, in the style of game. Going back to political assumptions and what th and the political assumptions different genres make, it strikes me there are two ways to go when you're doing stuff that is nowadays dubious. And that's either to subvert it, to do, um, to reimagine it. The, the native bearer is the guy who actually has all the answers and is keeping his idiot um the idiot explorer alive. Oh, well, the the Jeeves, uh, the, yep. the Jeeves Worcester thing, or or you're playing it entirely from the point of view of the native bearers, and the and the the, the Europeans are, are the um, are, are the idiot employers you're having to keep happy, or there's the alternative to just go, dive right in and glory in it and say, well, that's what my character would do, or at least sometimes you can you can hack things about a bit. Um, Savage Worlds, for example, mm -hmm. uh, is saying, "Okay, this is this is nineteen thirties pulp. This is what we're simulating." Yeah, and here are nineteen thirties pulp attitudes to women, non-white people, etc. Yeah, and you can keep those, or you can throw them out, and it doesn't actually break the world that much if you throw them out, because you are just a few heroes. You're not mm -hmm. representatives of the world. So, you know, you, you, you can have your um, adventuring female librarian, for example, yeah. who, while historically she, she would have been uh, looked down on and not invited to polite parties and so on, it doesn't really break a lot of things if she is considered an acceptable sort of person just as the guy with the six guns on his hip is. Yeah, there is... Some, in some ways that's tiptoeing around the problem. I keep yes. hearing of and, re and reading about people who will delve deep into the nastier issues, I don't seem to play that sort of game or come across people who are playing it. I'm aware that it's a possibility, but I'm also aware I could I could hurt people um, 
delving in, into it. It's a hazard when one's writing historical fiction as well. You, you, you want your readers to sympathise with the protagonist. Yeah. Which means you can't give the protagonist historically accurate attitudes. Hmm. Are we... Are we we're, we're, we're drifting a bit. We're drifting a bit. Well, I always knew this topic would drift a bit. I think it would be fair to say that the origins of fantasy role-playing being basically Westerns plus mm. a little bit of Tolkien are very very much on the great man thing and therefore have tended to attract people who thought in terms of that. Yeah. Which I suppose one could say is correlated with with being a bit right-wing-ish. Yeah. Um, but, um, okay, when you get into the gunnery side, that tends to be a lot of people who are a bit right-wing-ish. That's not absolute by any means. Mm. Uh, I, I, I met a communist revolutionary gun nut, and he was a very strange person. Anyway, uh, Political power grows from the barrel of a gun, comrade. I thought that was Daisy's. Anyway. Uh, I'm in 1968. <laughs> but I, I'm also remembering it, there's a certain constraint on what you can do in the game. I'm, I was just talking recently about um, gritty superhero comics in the 1980s. You know, oh. We're not just going to be about beating up bank robbers anymore. We're going to deal with real social problems. And what this often came down to was, we are going to solve the problem of homelessness by finding the right guy to punch in the face. <laughs> yeah. There is an ongoing belief, and it's a really stupid belief, that all problems can be solved with a violence that can be sufficiently accurately a applied. And this isn't true in the real world, but we do want to model the bits where it is sort of true. We do want to play. We do want to play the the SAS going into an embassy and killing the terrorists. That is, that does solve a problem. You can't deny it. But all our games spread out. Yeah, games always spread out, and you, and you have to do what Theodore Sturgeon said was the secret of of life and philosophy and art, and ask the next question. And once once the, the gun barrel is cooling in your hand and you've done the debrief, where'd you go next? Depends on the style of game. Um, what do you want? What do the players want? And I, I think that one reason role-playing has stuck to what is generally considered a genre, as in the, the stuff that gets looked down on by serious literary fiction because it has beginnings and middles and endings. That's not... Yeah, all right, go on. For the purposes of this, this discussion. But... Is because it's satisfying to have a beginning, a middle and an ending. So yeah, it's, it's a very simple story. Here is the problem. We are the people who are going to solve the problem. We go away and we solve the problem. Except Re repeat a little because it turns out to be more complicated than that. But fundamentally, we are making a difference. Yeah, oh, and and if you don't give the players agency, the ability to make a difference, then you're cheating them. And on the other yeah, hand, it's no fun. And on the other hand, one of the best works of art I know is sometimes Into the Woods, which the first half weaves a lot of fairy tales together and takes it up to the point at which. The baker has removed the curse, and Cinderella has married the prince, and uh, Red Riding Hood has escaped from the wolf, and Jack has killed, uh, come down the beanstalk and killed the giant. And that's the end of the first half. And in the second half, it all falls apart. Because you ask the next question, what happens next? Also, Mary Gentle's grunts, which opens with the final climactic battle between good and evil. Mm. And it's about the orcs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do they do afterwards? However, um, having waffled a lot, have we waffled to any effect? Mm, the thing, thing I wanted to mention was um, the, the idea of um, going wild, which was a discussion on the SJ Games Forum recently. I remember, yeah. um, the idea that this seems to be a thing that some groups have and some groups don't, and I've generally not been in a group that did. The, the idea that uh, we, we, we are... Um, rough and tough dungeon bashers, and when we get to town, we're, we're just going to treat it like another sort of dungeon. I've never seen the, that. The, the idea that we just don't want to be civilised, even though it's not particularly gaining us anything, mm. it's it's just the stuff we do. I, I've met it very occasionally in convention games, so it's not it's certainly not um, unknown in the UK. Yeah. Um, I, I hear about it more from the States, but there are more players in the States, so that's not, not surprising. Uh, it, it's just something that I, I think I would associate with the, the sort of guy who has a really high-pressure job and just wants to get to the game table and kill something. Yeah. Uh, the, the stress relief approach. I think I said... Uh, I think I said on the discussion, my fantasies don't focus around being stronger and tougher than I am and able to defy the laws. 
my fantasies focus around being a wiser and braver person than I actually am, okay. and being able to face the problems which I tend to run away from in real life. Mm. And hmm, I have the belief, which is almost certainly untrue, that I could pick up a broadsword and smash people's skulls, and if I really wanted to, I'm 60 next month, I'm so fooling myself. Find a sledgehammer the right weight, it's much easier to get the hang of. I'll bear that in mind if I ever want to go berserk. But I, I know that I have the limit of my wisdom and courage, because I run up against it more often. Hmm. And that is a that in, is in itself a terrible uh, great man, a bit of thinking. Not so much a power fantasy as, as a being a better person fantasy. Well, it's not like to do any harm. Well, true. I can, we can but hope. But would it do any good if it were true? <laughs> <laughs> I think we should pass on. Indeed. Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice, with me, Michael Kuehl, and me, Roger Bell West. If you liked what you heard, or even if you didn't and want to tell us about it, you can contact us at... Well, drop us a line on the website, or send an email to podcast at techily.ly. And we hope to be back with you next month, and we hope it'll be a bit cooler. That would be nice. Yeah. <laughs>